welcome back to Streaming Banshees, your TV book club on the internet. Today's podcast is about Hometown Cha-Cha-Cha, episode 10. This is Beep. You can reach me on Twitter at Beepsplain. Just a reminder, we are a re-watch podcast, so there will be spoilers for the entire series in every episode. So make sure you have finished before you listen. You can find us on our website, streamingbanshees.com, or on Twitter at TV Banshees. I am joined, as always, by the lovely Cece. Hey, guys. You can find me on Twitter at A Capital Check. And we have a special guest today, author, friend, and fellow TV fangirl, Gino. Hello. Hey, Gino. It's so good to have you on. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on. This is awesome. Oh, this is the best. We can now do for the next, I don't know, 10 hours what we did privately for months. <laughs> so many DMs. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so tell us a little about you. Where are you recording from? And where can people find you? Okay, so I am recording from Nashville, Tennessee, where I live. <laughs> and I'm on Twitter at Gino Namit, which is J-E-E-N-O-N-A-M-I-T. Where I retweet a lot of memes and cat pictures and pictures of hot men. And where I also tweet about a book that I am publishing with Berkeley Romance Penguin Random House in about actually almost exactly one year from now. It's coming out. It's so, so exciting. What's it called? It is called My Roommate is a Vampire, which I like as a title because it also functions as a summary. I think it's a pretty <laughs> summary of the book as well. And I, I like efficiencies. Very succinct. Very succinct. Yes. And it's a, a rom-com. And I like to sort of say it's a cross between what we do in the shadows which is a very silly vampire comedy show, crossed with The Flat Share, which is a, oh, a wonderful, oh my God, they were roommates, rom-com novel. And yeah, yeah. It sounds like you might have snuck a little uh, being human in there. Yes, I have. I have. We will put your information, information we can find about the book, ways that people can connect to you via your newsletter. That will be in the show notes, everyone. So please take a look at that and connect with Gino. So last question before all the questions. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you love Hometown Cha-Cha-Cha? The writing is so careful and so... Clearly, the the thought that the writer put into every single piece of what went into the show was just astonishing. You know, I started watching it because of an Emma video, of course. (laughs) And I was like, oh, fun beachside romance romp. This sounds like it's going to be fun and light. And, you know, the summer's ending. It's going to be exactly what I want. It's so, and it is, you know, there was some of that, but it was so immersive. The writer clearly had a plan from the beginning of the first episode all the way through to the very end of the careful character-driven story that she wanted to tell. And I think, I mean, it, 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 that plus the, the earth-shattering performances by the lead actors as well as the ensemble cast just really kept me riveted and squealing and fascinated from, you know, the whole way. 
So, you guys, I'm a little bit nervous because we have to talk about episode 10. And I feel, I'm feeling a little pressure because this is like a rom-com masterpiece. Gino, do you remember watching this episode live what the following week was like? Oh, it was it was unreal. And I think the lead up to it was also unreal and so tense because we all suspected that, you know, their relationship was going to hit the boiling point in episode 10, or we were hoping that it would. There were signs that it might, but it wasn't totally clear if it was going to happen because there were some very specific character-ish reasons why it might not. And so when it did finally happen, like, I don't think I slept very well that whole weekend. (laughs) Partially because I have friends in different time zones that were DMing me theories and screen caps. And (laughs) yeah, no, it was it was unbelievable. It felt like we won the Romantic World Cup. (laughs) We did. Yeah. It has been a long time since I had this much fun online after an episode aired. It was like the Ewoks were celebrating on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) And it's funny because I like I I want to take them away and we're going to end up just just for listeners. This is going to end up as probably no surprise to you all a two parter. And I want to take I want to take a little bit of time before we start diving in scene by scene. Because I think that this episode of TV came at a really interesting time, at least at least for viewers here in the U.S. And so about two months before this episode aired, Ted Lasso did the Rom Communism episode. That was this tongue-in-cheek, but also lovely, made-your-heart-want-to-explode tribute to like every great American or British rom-com movie that you can think of. And it culminated with Roy Kent, you know, running through the stadium to the music and, you know, to give you that big crescendo rom-com moment where he finally says what he's feeling out loud to Ted and joins the team as a coach. And after that aired, there was a lot of discourse, <laughs> but but in, in the real world, in my real world, like at the park with parents or like out at drinks, but also online about how much we don't get that anymore. And kind of this nostalgia for, God, remember the like when Harry met Sally and Notting Hill and Love Actually and You've Got Mail and all of these like 10 things I hate about you, all of these great rom-com moments where you just feel this like exhilaration and the tingles of that like payoff grand romantic moment. And just kind of like this, we don't get that anymore. And like, how come? And I think for a lot of us that in the last couple of years, at least in the U.S., who have been watching K-drama, we're like, well, other people are doing it. <laughs> we, we may not be like Hollywood may not have been investing a lot of time and resources in it. But then this episode came along and I not only was I like on the moon for all of the reasons that you said, Gino, about the sort of character driven payoff of this meticulous journey we had been on. And finally the pot was boiling over and the writer was not going to kick the can, like she was going to pay it off, but also just appreciating it like I had been yearning for it. Yeah, I mean, I do think that what you're talking about absolutely 
I found in this episode, but I, I do think that like it's it explains why I have found getting involved in K dramas so satisfying in general because there are or there have been you know K dramas have been far less hesitant to really give us those big heart stopping spine tingling moments of pure romantic comedy bliss that we don't really have in America anymore. So I think that that speaks, what you just said really speaks well. Like in general, what has been so appealing about K-dramas generally. But I do agree also that episode 10 was sort of like the pinnacle of that. Like all of the writing that had gone into the nine episodes that came before it fed so perfectly into what we got in episode 10. So it wasn't just, you know, rom-com payoff it was like rom-com payoff par excellence you know with very few analogies that i can even think of in other pieces of entertainment that i've consumed yeah and part of that also i mean all of it is all of that and also because it's television and because it's like this longer narrative format we've spent hours with these characters Right. Like we know them in a way that you don't in a two hour movie. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so like when you have a writer really deliver on that payoff, I mean, you can I can really only think of like Parks and Rec or, you know, like Parks and Rec and Brooklyn Nine-Nine and and The Good Place (laughs) kind of have the like, you know, comedy slow burn market where but that's kind of it, you know, and there's a lot more going on in those shows it's just a small piece of that of those shows yeah i mean slow burn and you know extensive character when you only have two hours you just the, the medium doesn't really allow for it i don't understand why we don't get these things anymore right i mean look at the viewership it's not that this isn't wanted in america for some reason just things all we want to see is grimdark things where people die i don't I mean, you can have a super complex story. And obviously, this one is is really far on the other side in many ways. But you can have a super complex story with three-dimensional characters and a, a wonderful narrative that doesn't involve just, like, cheap shock value constantly. In fact, I think it's harder to do this. Yeah. And isn't embarrassed of it. You know what I mean? Like, they totally swing for the fences. They swing. It's just like... You go from small detail, very intimate conversations, which just build and build and build for that swing for the fences, running in slow motion, driving all night, and the and the, the you know the soundtrack's going to blare and it's going to be that huge spine tingly moment, right? And it does all of it. I think one of the other things that I was thinking about as I was trying to distill like why because this really I, I like I have I'll just put this out here. This is one of my most favorite episodes of TV. And I was trying to think why, like why, other than the obvious, like, because I've watched that kiss scene 80,000 times. And I was thinking, Beep, from the podcast that we did before about 12 Monkeys, and we had Terry Metalis, who's another television writer I respect a lot. And he said that the biggest challenge for a writer is to give the audience what they want, but not the way that they were expecting it. And I think this episode is interesting because it kind of does... A lot of the things that we expect from rom-com, driving all night, finding the person, all of the things that I just said, but then it subverts 
some tropes and delivers it in a way that we weren't, right? Like, it's the girl who says, I love you first, right? Who says, I like you. We start the last the last episode left off with the two guys going to confess. And it's like, nope, we're not going to do that. A lot of people were worried that this was going to be sort of a kick the can, right? There was, there was, it's, he was even considering saying no mid-confession, right? And that this was going to be the kind of show where you're going to have to wait till like episode 15 for the couple to get together. Again, that's not what happened. Do you guys have any thoughts about sort of like how it plays with a lot of the things that we expect and want to be delivered in a rom-com, but kind of does it in a way that maybe we weren't anticipating? I mean, there's a lot more going on under the surface. There's so many other characters included in the narrative, and there are other stories going on. It's not just based around that. Like you mentioned earlier, we spend so many hours with them. It's not just a movie where, you know, the two central characters are all there are. There's so many relationships. Every type of relationship is explored. We've got mental health thrown in there you know, actual PTSD and pass, and it's messy. And I, we definitely don't get a lot of that either. Yeah. I think that what's really amazing about this show is so much of the time when tropes are sort of flipped or subverted, you know, it, it, it's sort of what Beep was talking about earlier. They flip it for shock value and they don't give you a satisfying payoff. They just flip it for the, you know, Subvert it for the sake of being edgy or different. But I do think what's definitely unique about this is, yeah, they took the tropes and they flipped them around, but they still gave us such a satisfying payoff that it really, I think, shows what it, I think it really underscores how lazy the writing is for most trope flipping trope subversion, like wh- when the writer tries to do that, because yes, they flipped it, but the writer had an alternative plan that still gave the viewers something that was immensely satisfying and didn't just try to shock them. So, I mean, I I think that this is actually one of the few instances where I can point to a TV show and says, yes, they, they, that's not what I expected, but wow, it was satisfying and maybe even more satisfying because it was done a little bit differently. Yeah. I wanted to take a second and read something that Shinha Un said in and in the interview that's published in the script book, and we're relying on the translation as always by the Twitter account at Lovely Shinina. She said this about the the structure, the story structure of the show. Quote, because it was a love that started in a very difficult way. I did not want to break up the two of them just because of my desire to use a dramatic situation. So the two are the only comfort and salvation for each other. I only thought about that. Perhaps some of you find this process boring. To be honest, some people expressed their concerns when they saw the synopsis for the first time and said that it was slow. However, I made a false statement and remarked that I would try to ride the, quote, flirting stage for a long time. I still don't know what kind of courage I got at that time. And we still have more episodes to go. And she's given the audience what they want. It, it is brief. I mean, I was thinking, Beep, two or three years ago when we were talking about other television shows and we're kind of frustrated with the state of American TV, what we were complaining about was the way television writers are afraid of the moonlighting effect and how you get rid of the tension of the will they or won't they and then everything just peters out and you have to come up with some kind of like dramatic breakup or you have to kick the can because once you kind of, you know, fire Chekhov's gun of, of the romance, then you lose that, that tension. 
And we had a television writer tell us if, if some writers don't think relationships are interesting, they question whether they've ever been in one. And I think what's different about the structure is she basically, Shin Ha-un was brave enough to say, okay, the rest of the story is going to be about the two of them in a relationship and dealing with everything that life throws at a relationship in early stages, like all those ups and downs and the highs and lows. And then I'm going to delve into everything else that I have been building. And you're going to watch this couple do it together instead of waiting till the end to put them together or breaking them up in the middle, which is actually pretty rare. It is really rare. And there, you know, to the extent there's a there's definitely, you know, a dearth of romantic storytelling, you know, in Western media. But even to the extent it exists, they we never see an exploration of what happens to the couple after they are officially together. Like that's functionally the end of the story in so many of, you know, I'm thinking of Bridgerton as just, you know, the first example that comes to mind. It's such a treat to actually watch a show that explores how a couple that is in love and that is committed, that are committed to another, how they explore the challenges in life, you know, once they actually get together. It's not the end of the story. It's a significant part of their journey together as a as a couple. And I was delighted that the writer chose, instead of breaking them up in the third act, to show how, as a couple, they worked together to overcome trauma. I thought that was beautiful, and I really appreciate that. Because it's so rare. It's really rare. Yeah, it's really rare. So let's dive in. Let's dive into the beginning of the episode. So speaking of subverting expectations, we left off the last episode with practically a three-way split screen of two men on their way to both confess to Heijin and her staring at a light thinking of only one of them. Talk to me about what happens instead. I think this is another example of how the writer subverted expectations beautifully or flipped it or gave us something other than what we were expecting. Because, you know, I can't speak for all viewers, but by the app going into episode 10, I was expecting that there would be a race to who could confess first among the men. I, you know, I was thinking, oh my gosh, maybe it will be, you know, the third prong of the love triangle will get there first. But that was what the drama was going to be about. We got something entirely different than what we were expecting. We didn't get the race to confess. We sort of did, but the the robber showing up really threw everything that we'd been expecting completely out the window. And it showed sort of who was going to be, you know, I don't like using this phrasing, but who was going to sort of come out the winner of this love triangle, not because of a race of who got there first, but because of the events that happened in her apartment, how he calls her by her first name for the first time. And the scene in the hospital where the viewer can see through little looks and glances and unspoken interactions between the three characters who's sort of like how the love story is going to resolve. And it does happen, but not at all in a way that we were expecting. And I just thought that it was masterful how it was done. 
Yeah, because she's going, I mean, she's, it's not going to be the woman sitting in her house waiting for the two men to come to her to confess and they have the agency, right? Right. It's going to be her who has the agency who's running to do it. So you've got that. But on the other hand, she has built up to this as kind of shocking as it is, because this has been, at least up until this point, a little bit of a lighter show. And I was like, oh, oh my, oh my God, like we have somebody being like attacked in their home. Like this is a, like a woman's nightmare. She had built it up all along, right? Like this guy attempted this with Cho He. We already had all of these, you know, up until this point, kind of comical, you know, that Chi Pong is kind of the quote unquote hero of Ganjin, right? And comes and saves the day and is a fighter and all of this stuff, like going back to when he was a teenager. But now she's going to pay all of that off instead of giving us the two guys racing to confess. Did you guys notice that he was able to get into her house because he still knows the code, which is his birthday? <laughs> I didn't pick up I on that. I did. Yes. <laughs> yes. She never changed it, did she? No. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Let's talk about what our good friend Tony called Chief Hong taking a platonic knife for Haitian. <laughs> Yes, you know, there are so many platonic knives floating out about in the world. Oh, oh my goodness. I know that we're going to get to this, but the idea that his injury is less acknowledged than what she went through (laughs) absolutely kills me every time. Yeah, it looks like it hurt, man. (laughs) What I love about this scene, though, is that as soon as he thought he kind of had the guy away enough, he was checking on her. Mm. And then that's how it actually got worse, mm-hmm. you know, and he's like, oh, I have to turn around and fight again. But he and was it, just so his attention as as much as possible was on her and how she was feeling and what she was going through. And this guy was just like a distraction. And it was so I wish I know I keep using the word it's masterfully done, <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's so true. And I feel like. We got so much more information about what he was thinking, what he was feeling, what was going through his mind than if we'd gotten a more standard confession because of all of the things that you just said, B. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Especially because we've talked in previous podcasts, we know that this is going to be a kind of like wah, wah confession, (laughs) basically like. So I like you, but I'm going to kind of put a lid on it because he is holding on to his whole list of reasons. So instead, this guy is on his way to give what was probably going to be the saddest half confession in the history of the world. And instead has to like, it's all instinct, right? It's all about how he feels because every time Chi Pong is up in his head, it gets in the way of what he feels. But this situation, because of the danger, it's all it's all about what he feels. It's, as you said, calling her by her first name, jumping in front of a knife for her, making sure she's okay. And it's all about feeling. And I feel like this episode with him is a lot of this kind of war between his head and his heart. And because Shin Ha-un constructs a situation where there's no time for your head, it gives us a front row seat to what he's like actually feeling. I couldn't um, agree more. He also looks incredibly attractive while he's doing it. And it's like a problem how much I enjoyed him beating that He guy. does. And you know, Nana... <laughs> Denim on denim is a bold choice, <laughs> but he makes it work. 
He is, he is a wily fashion terrorist because he <laughs> goes in there like a denim warrior. And I'm still like, yeah, I'm going to watch that like 15 times. <laughs> denim on, it is bold. It is bold. But denim on denim can pay off at times. It really can. <laughs> oh, poor director G. He, he said, this time I'm not going to be too late. Guys, he's too late. He, he arrives at the house. And then he's like, oh, my God. I mean, everybody who was on their way to confess their love got quite a shock tonight. Here's the thing, though. Yeah. He was too late before he even showed back up. He was. Yeah. Not not today, like just at all. You know, in, yep. in Gonjin, before he showed up, he was already too late. It was 15 years. You know, he had to regret yes. for 15 years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? well, I meant because of what was developing between the two of them already. That, too. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That was that was on a slow train, but it was technically moving. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about the hospital scene. This is one of those scenes where you have the dialogue on one level, and then you have this sort of masterful, like micro expressive acting that lets you know what everybody is observing about everybody else. The way it starts off, though is them bickering about the length of the knife, which feels very them. But then the joking stops as soon as bringing back to it Beep said, and this is a theme in the episode, right, is that when you care about somebody, you're more worried about them than you. Chief Hong is sitting there with like a stab wound, and he's worried about a bruise on Heijin's arm. So she, she gets really upset. She starts crying. And then she says, who jumps at a guy with, his, with a knife in his hand? And he says, I was worried he might hurt you. And all of the joking stops and it gets super serious. They do. And they continue holding hands as well, which I just want to flag. That's <laughs> <laughs> very, yeah, yeah. And, they, and, then they, and then when Director G walks in, he, she pulls her arm away. And yeah. Like, why, why is that? I don't know, but it is always, always, always important to clock the location of hands, <laughs> especially in a rom-com. Exactly. It is. Where are everyone's hands? I'll tell you what's happening in this story. I mean, when I have watched this scene, and I don't know how many times I've watched this scene, it's many times, I can't help but wonder if maybe he hadn't really analyzed the answer to why did you do that? Until right then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because he pauses and he kind of thinks about it. And and I think it goes back to what you were saying before, Tina. Like, he wasn't thinking in that moment. He was acting on instinct and acting on what he was feeling. And just completely shut off sort of why, I, why he shouldn't be with her. You know, he wasn't up in his head anymore. And so, like, when he's presented with who jumps in front of a guy with a gun, he, I wonder if he's sort of confronted with that, you know, for the first time. Um, yeah. yeah. And, like, the enormity of that really kind of takes him aback. Yeah. Especially because at the end of the last episode, and it's not just sort of us speculating, because we now know that, like, what Shin Hoon in her interview said is that he he is fully aware of how he feels so much so that that's the reason why he was even there that night because he was going to 
he'd worked up the nerve, kind of inspired by her dad, to, to kind of in some way try and articulate it. So this is now a Chief Hong that's fully aware of how he feels. He's watching her crying over him getting hurt, which is like, oh, it's yeah. like, there's a lot to process, <laughs> right? Especially when it comes back around to the moment where she just blurts out, thank you. And he's like, she's like, oh, I didn't say it out loud. And he's like, oh, honey, you've been saying it for like hours now. Yeah. Can, can I tell you something fun that was a line that got cut that a, a reader sent us a translation in the script book? There was a line that got cut from this scene that he said, this is before director G shows up. How am I supposed to see you getting hurt right in front of my eyes? And that was the last thing he said right before director Xi shows up. So there's this thread throughout the episode. It's both with them. It's also with Mison and Yun Chol that is you're worried. You're more worried about people that you care about than you are for yourself in a situation. And whether that's taking a platonic knife or stay, staying up all night in a hospital, like those are the kind of like healthy <laughs> and clues as to like how people are really feeling talk to me about when director g shows up that is so awkward (laughs) i think because there was just it was so unexpected and i don't know that it's awkward so much on anyone's part except for mine (laughs) but the fact that he just kind of like shows up in the middle of that and i I feel like every time he kind of shows up where they are they have to not necessarily romantically, but have to reset themselves. You know what I mean? Pull apart a bit and kind of like, oh, mm. this guy's here again. Not in a bad way, but just we're not really sure what we are or where we are right now. And you, you just you're here, which is surprising and confusing. Because he's inter- yeah, because he's interrupting, right? That's what it always feels like, right? He was he was holding her hand, and he, as soon as Director G shows up, she she pulls her hand away, and it's like, Gino pointing that, it's like. Why does that need to happen when he's there if it doesn't mean something, you know? It's also these two guys, the last time that they talked, they both basically were like, uh, the subtext was, we like the same girl. And, they, and and so when he's making up excuses about his tablet and why he came back, you can just watch sort of the journey Chief Hong's face goes on where he's just clocking, looking back and forth between Director Ji and Heijin and back and forth. And he's like, I know what's really going on here. That was maybe some of the best and effective pieces of non-dialogue character writing that I've seen in, in ages. Like, we knew exactly what was going on in Chief Mom's mind at that moment in time. And all they did was shoot to the camera where he's looking back and forth between characters. And I think that Tian Ho, just what an incredible actor he is to be able, it's like, it's like two seconds, three seconds of screen time, but just the, you know, the writing and his acting, like the amount of communication and character work that goes into that scene is just astonishing. Yeah. Not a word is spoken. Right. Cause he's not talking. Everybody else is, the, the two other people are talking, mm-hmm. but I'm watching him watching them. Yep. Me too. And you know exactly what he's thinking. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just incredible acting, and it's really careful editing to preserve all of that. Every time I see one character looking at the other character who's looking at the other character, 
It always reminds me of 27 Dresses, how the journalist speaks about every time there's a wedding and everyone turns around to look at the bride, he says, I turn to look at the groom Mm. because I want to know what he is seeing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it always reminds me of that when, you know, people are trying, I feel like they're almost trying to look through someone else's eyes. Yeah. And he's not, I mean, it's, and this is important, right? Because this is, I I mean, I think about this a lot as well-written wonderfully written as this show is, if you don't have an actor that can let the audience into a character's head who there's, you know, there's a wall between the audience and Chief Hong still on purpose, right? That's how the writer has structured it. We know that he has something deeper going on. We've just gotten glimpses on it at it. We can surmise what he was doing that night when he turned direction and he started walking faster and arrived at her house. But we don't, you know, there's no explanation for it. So we're still doing like a lot of guesswork. So that that kind of just watching his face, I felt like I was like mining this entire episode for clues just from Chief Hong's face and from Kim Sun Ho's acting, how he was reacting to certain things. I still feel really bad for Director Xi because it's like he knows it's over. You know what I mean? Like, did you guys get that sense? The way he walks out and kind of takes that deep breath. It's like Absolutely. He, I think he knew it was over from the moment he pulled that curtain aside and saw them. Mm. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Certainly I by the time I felt bad for left. him here, but in the context of the show, I don't feel bad for him at all. Because it's yeah, like, silly. Agreed. You already have this relationship that you're just ignoring. So go get your girl. Yeah. I mean, he has a great, he has his own. I mean, that's one of the things that we, is so great about the show. He has his own journey. And, and not being late and saying saying things out loud and not having regrets, I think, is part of the journey he has to go on to get to recognizing what's already in his life beep. But this is, you know, it's not like I, I definitely, because I was extremely concerned that the show was going to go full on love triangle as of this episode. So it's not like, I mean, Gino can go and screenshot the DMs from <laughs> this week leading up to episode 10. I was really worried about it, but I could do that. Yes. <laughs> no, I bet they're way too far back. You wouldn't even find them at this point. No, probably not. <laughs> All caps worried about this love triangle. But but I I think that you what I think is wonderful about this is that as focused as I am on Chief Hong and Heijun and everything that's going on and and the way that it turned from them bickering to all of a sudden something shifting between them. I still feel a lot of empathy for for Director Xi because you can just tell from his face he was going to confess too and he just pulled back the curtain and somebody else saved the girl he likes and he walked in and he was holding her hand and you know he, he knows it's over and he spends a lot of this episode like well do I say something anyway just to because I didn't the last time but yeah so they walk out of the hospital Chief Hong is afraid of needles <laughs> not not platonic knives, but needles. Talk to me about sleepover number three. Gino, Chief Hong is babbling. <laughs> Why do you think he's he's full on babbling? He is babbling. And I think that his I think his brain is 404 Chief Hong not found a little bit. <laughs> Great technical reference. <laughs> This is, this is your, this is, oh, this is not your first time. This is my third. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And then 
he loses like he just his his composure slips so much but he's trying to sort of mask that that it just makes it cuter and more endearing and more sweet and hilarious because <laughs> he's masking it so poorly <laughs> so poorly like the third daughter's pretty she's like yeah yeah, like, yeah 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 he's like literally he's like stuttering <laughs> talk to me about she is wearing his clothes trope so when i saw so they they released that little snippet the night before mm-hmm. And of her walking out of his room wearing his clothes and the way he looks up at her. And I think that, like, I just, like, squealed for 90 minutes straight. Like, I've read that fic. I'm pretty sure I've written that fic. (laughs) Yeah, I was DMing, like, everybody I knew, saying, basically, ah, in all caps, because it's just such a delicious and like the way he looks up and does a double take but tries to hide the fact that he's doing a double take it's just like give me a bag of popcorn and a lawn chair and a diet coke and (laughs) let me just watch this on repeat for like the rest of my life Oh my god can can I tell you so I I, my husband is watching hometown for the first time right now he's got two episodes left and so we watched this episode last week he made like an inhuman noise when she walked out wearing his shirt. So it's like, it's like not just a thing for women. It's like, it's like there's something about seeing your clothes on, or like, I think even for men, like it's like, it's intimate, even though it's not. Does that make sense? Like, it, it's just kind of like, you're like internally screaming. Chief Hong is internally screaming because he does that double take. And then, oh my God, every time he jokes about how she is bigger than him, that's like, dude, that's so ridiculous. You're so lucky that you're so adorable. (laughs) I know because it borders sometimes on like, chill. But I, I think though that the clothing thing even though, I mean, clothes are not important and I don't think we really see them, you know, as an extension of ourselves. But like when it's yours, I mean, she's coming out like wrapped in part of him. Oh. <laughs> Nailed it. Pause <laughs> 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 for the human screeching. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this guy lives, he's lived alone for like two decades. And now this woman that he has all of these crazy feelings for is spending the night in his home wearing his clothes and it's midnight. Like, <laughs> and she's there because she's scared of uh-huh. being in her home. And so he's protecting her by allowing her to share his home with him and his clothes. And then he's made her tea and he's rubbing her feet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the real shit. I mean, this scene... This scene was the real fucking deal. I'm sorry. I don't do it. We're going to, I will have to just put an explicit rating for this episode because it's just, there's going to be a lot of fucks (laughs) this episode. Go. Not (laughs) in the show itself, unfortunately, (laughs) but a recap of the show. You know, I just lost it and it's been like, how long has it been? Eight months and I'm losing it all over again. Because part of it is the, this is a this is such a slow burn. 
that we were analyzing things like people looking at each other and, and glances across the room and doing acts for one another, right? All of a sudden, you start to feel this like rising, like, okay, so she's there and it's the middle of the night and she's wearing his clothes. Now he's touching her feet and there's this like tension. Like this is different for them, you know, like something's shifting and it's like the audience knows that now things are like kind of ramping up. And it's like they're using all of these again. It's like <laughs> there are all these tropes, right? You're you're in the same place the same night because she can't stay at her place, right? She's wearing his clothes. Uh, she got a cramp. Now he's got her up his feet. But it's all done so well. And we've waited so long for it that now we're getting this like payoff buildup. Does that make sense? And in your brain, you're like, oh, my God, this is happening. <laughs> like we're the train just picked up. Like, I would also like to point out. I'm sure it has happened in the history of the world, but I cannot think of a single platonic foot rub. <laughs> no, it's, it's a thing. Yeah, no, not platonic. Well, the person is wearing your clothes and it's midnight in your house. No. no. Yeah, I mean, we're ticking some real boxes here. <laughs> yeah. So it gives us all of that deliciousness, right? But then we get some incredible emotional intimacy. And it always had these depths of some of which we, we kind of were let in on the audience. Like we always knew that there was a little, there was more going on in his head because of these little snippets we've gotten from his therapy sessions and his nightmares. But also this is the first time, you know, it's not just that Chief Hong is opening up to Heijin for the first time. This is also the audience's first chance to hear him outside of therapy, but even then it's been a little bit vague, talk about himself. And on rewatch, it's even, there's so much more to unpack because you have this sort of intimacy about opening up with the grandfather and what Heijin says to him. But now we, now we know fully all of the other layers of the conversation that's going on inside Chief Hong's head as they're talking about this. So, What's crazy about this scene is, think about how closed off he has been pretty much up until this point. Like, think about the first time they were sitting and drinking wine and she was the one talking. Like, he gave her nothing. And they just talked on the boat and he wouldn't answer any questions. Now she, like, sees the memorial plates and he starts talking about his grandfather. You know, I know I joked earlier about how... You know, I used the NF bomb, but the show doesn't show any, you know, fucking. <laughs> but the amount of intimacy in this scene is just staggering. You know, up until this point, he'd really been a closed book completely. And here he is telling her some of his innermost, not see, um, sort of secrets, and some of, some of the things he keeps closest to his chest, like in the entire world. And some of the fears that he has, you know, what happened to his grandfather and how he feels that he's the cause of so much, you know, sadness and tragedy in other people's lives. And we don't get the full backstory now. We don't know anything about his home yet. But I, I feel like just the, the intimacy this showed, the trust he shows at this point was just really something and really hit me very hard when I watched it. Yeah. I mean, Beep, you've talked a lot about sort of the 
the mental health journey we watch Chief Hong go on in this show as being unique in that we're not watching the journey of somebody going to get help and going to therapy. We're watching how do you then bring that out into real life with people in your life? And he has not done that. I mean, he flat out says, I've only talked about this with one other person my entire life. And so outside of outside of the room with his psychiatrist, he has not talked about this. Do you have any thoughts sort of about how the the intimacy between the two of them is woven inextricably with the character journey? You know, I always have to start with the funny. So I do love that she is jealous about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm second. Like, what? yeah, as if they all of a sudden are are so deeply intertwined. This is what I've been talking about before, and it's starting to unravel in our our very presence. There's a huge difference between having that healing and that health and and help in the sanctuary of an office with one other person who really has no effect on your day-to-day life versus bringing it home and trying to do something with it. And to see, to get that part of his journey is really cool to actually see someone who's been trying to get help in that bubble and now is realizing, you know, not even realizing, I don't think he's doing it on purpose, but the idea that he feels comfortable enough with someone to bring that out into the open is just, it's amazing progress in his personal journey. Yeah. The writing that is so beautiful is if we put this moment of him opening up in the context of the story that we've watched so far, when they first sat down together in that same place, the first time she was there, she opened up about how her mother's memories were fading. And that's that's why she went to Gunjin in the first place, to, to try and be in a place that, where her mother had been and try and kind of claw back those memories that she said were fading. He was visibly moved, but said nothing. Now he's opening up. And, and I think there's there's like a lot of reasons why, right? Like, obviously, he feels really safe and trusts her. And he's going to say in like the next day or two days from now that his feelings for her are as deep as the deepest lake in the world. There's a lot of emotion going on inside of him right now. His head's getting in the way, but he's still opening up to her. They just went through something incredibly traumatic together. And I, and I think that that's both something that happens in fiction, but also real life that you then feel closer to, you can feel closer to somebody after you go through something together. But also she's somebody that you, she has, she hasn't experienced the loss to the same extent as he has, but, but she was feeling this too. And so the conversation starts with her asking What do you do you remember a lot about him? And then he kind of calls back to that first conversation that they had. And he's basically like, like, not much. Like, I remember his hands. They were rough and they were warm. And that's so it's like so poignant and so real when you've lost somebody, you know, that's been gone for 20 years. But the way I just think it's really beautiful that their conversations began with and have now come full circle and now he's the one who's opening up about the person that he misses it's a mirroring of the conversations yeah she keeps the conversation going and she asks him about was he a mischievous little boy 
And she's, again, you know, there's this whole layer that she's talking about this photograph that they're going to figure out finally the connection in the next episode. He describes himself as a kid before his grandfather died, as somebody who was stealing squid from the old lady's yard, playing soccer all day in a pair of blue shoes that he loved. It now makes me think of when Ha Zhang will later tell He Jin that after his grandfather died, he had to grow up really fast and be mature and hold himself back. He says, I never play or watch soccer anymore. Do you guys have any thoughts about how much is underneath that that ties into basically like the entire way he's living his life? Yes. I mean, he really just has been living in a, a state of exist. He's just been existing for others and denying all pieces of himself that might be who he truly is. Or he's trying to tamp those down. And I think the soccer, you know, something that used to be a huge part of his life, like he feels like he doesn't deserve these things anymore. And so he's going to deny himself. I think that that shaped who he is today and who he was when he went through, you know, his five years. Because he already grew up in such a way that he was, you know, mostly alone. He obviously took on that role as a very young child to blame himself for what happened to another person that was completely out of his control. And the situation itself is obviously very different because, you know, his grandfather was old and had a heart attack versus the person who was killed in a car. But he already had kind of the mental perspective or slant towards everything happening to everyone around him being his fault. So I think that was just a huge pile on. Yeah. I, I mean, the first thing that strikes me now when we watch this flashback is that it's not just that he has lost frankly, a staggering amount of people in his life. He has either found the body of someone he loves or been next to somebody who he loves and watched them die. Like, it, it's not just loss, it's trauma. Because I can't imagine a 15-year-old finding the dead body of their grandfather. It's trauma, and I strongly suspect until... Yeah relatively recently, he wasn't really seeking therapy for this trauma. I mean, we see him working with a therapist now, but I can't imagine that he was seeking therapy as a teenager in Gongjin. And we don't see much of, you know, his life in college and after. But I think it's reasonable to assume that until he lost his young, he was really bearing all of it without getting the help he needed, which just piles on to it. Yeah, yeah. Now, maybe as, as a mom of three children that all play soccer and are obsessed with watching soccer, this, the, the idea that a child processed the loss of their loved one, and in this case, only family, as taking on that guilt from the chatter at the memorial and never played or enjoyed something that they love again, uh, honestly, like, breaks me. Because it's such a very elegant 
way for Shin Ha-un to communicate two things to us. He, he, he had to grow up that day, just like Haitian had to grow up when she lost her mother and she had to get herself to school. But number two, that he processes loss through taking on guilt and then basically like living out of guilt, even for things like this, that, I mean, his grandfather died of a heart attack and they were like, I mean, he's, it's such an, like sort of attenuated what if that, that, but, but now is compounded by all of the other what ifs that he's thinking about for all of the things that happen later. Okay. So one of the things when we talk about like meticulous writing that I think if you were watching this show in South Korea, you would have known instantly. But maybe if you were a audience, an international audience member, it might have taken a couple other steps. But it's just, I think, meticulous writing and also really compounds the extraordinary guilt that is, I think, really misplaced that Chief Hong is putting on himself as a child. This game that he went out to go watch, they very purposefully put a particular T-shirt on Chief Hong. And he's wearing a 2002 FIFA World Cup, like Korea fighting T-shirt. So this World Cup was the first World Cup that was ever hosted outside of Europe or sort of South America, North America. And it was hosted by South Korea and Japan. And it was a really, really big deal to have it sort of outside the typical countries that had hosted it historically. And it was a like crazy all-time World Cup. Like all, a lot of the big teams lost. And South Korea in particular went on a like all-time Cinderella, David versus Goliath run. And they beat teams like Italy and Spain. And they made it to the semifinal of the World Cup, which I love the World Cup. And so I'm getting very excited. But this is like, this is like the equivalent, if you're an American, of like the United States playing the Soviet Union in the 1980 Olympics. This is like, you're the ultimate underdog. And this has like never been done before. And in fact, other than the US in 1930, like no other team outside of Europe or South America has ever made a semifinal. So this boy who loves soccer, on June 25th, 2002, because we know the exact date he's going to mark two days later when he starts, he and Haitian officially in a relationship is the 27th, is a real game that like I even as an American adult studying for the bar exam took a time out from studying to go watch this epic semifinal of South Korea versus Germany. So this isn't just like a like a teenager being like oh i shouldn't have like gone to watch the soccer game this is like this is a kid saying this is like one of the greatest sporting moments in south korean history like that's the level of guilt and and like the narrative in his head is that messed up that he regrets going to do something that probably 95 percent of people in the country and like all over the world were watching does that make you feel like even worse about it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's so interesting. And like, I mean, you and I were DMing about a thousand times an hour when this episode was airing. And without you, prov- like that, that cultural context, I'll admit, was completely lost on me. I, I don't pay attention to sports generally. And this particular game was not at all on my radar. And so 
I think this is actually an example of how so much nuance and this not having, this is nothing to do with, or it's bigger than just hometown cha-cha-cha, but I think that there's a lot of nuance that non-people who are not Koreans miss when they watch K-dramas, even if the subtitling is really, really good, just because this is not something that probably, this is something I missed completely. But I agree, you know, I think other South Koreans are obviously going to pick up on this, and I think that you're right that it really does show the level of guilt he's being been carrying around. And again, I think it just underscores how brilliantly and carefully and methodically this was written because that is such a good way to show rather than tell the audience of what he's been carrying around all this time. Yeah. He says, Be- because of soccer, no. Because of me, my grandfather passed away. What I think is so extraordinary about what he is saying out loud to Jin is that the only time we have heard Dushik, not Chief Hong, Dushik, say something like this was at the end of the last episode when he was talking to the therapist. This is, this is just another way of saying what he said to his therapist. Everyone dies and it's my fault. And I, I think this is probably the first time he has ever said that deeply held guilt and belief about himself out loud to somebody who's not his therapist. I like the way in this aspect, too, is like I said before, that he doesn't do that deliberately. It's contextual and it's automatic because he finally feels safe with somebody. And what he's saying is, of course, wrong. I mean, he's not responsible for any of these deaths and obviously not responsible for everyone's death. I mean, what a way to grow up, though. It's just it's devastating that he never shared that even earlier on, you know, with with anyone in the village or even with Gamry, not not the five years, but specifically with his grandpa, who could have talked him out of that because it, it just has created even more issues for him to be able to reinforce that idea that he has about himself. Yeah. And he always uh, he always opens up to people about his grandfather, like his grandfather's the safer ground to begin talking about this, right? But the thing that is so moving about this scene now when you rewatch it is you is we know that he now blames himself and is thinking about a lot of other what ifs. So so this what if is if only I hadn't gone to the game, I would have come back earlier and been able to call for help. And then maybe my grandfather could have been saved at a hospital. But now we know there's all these other what ifs, right? If I had just followed up with the security guard when I gave him the card about investing, if I had just answered my phone after the market crashed, right? If I had just not tried not to leave and then my Hyung had to come after me, if only I had just not let him drive, like it would have been me and not him. What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? And what Jin says to him is, don't tell me you believe he wouldn't have passed away had you been home. Those what ifs, are pointless. There are too many variables and they are beyond our control. Talk to me about his reaction to that. I I don't think he believed her. That was sort of my, you know, he, he took it, he listened to it, and he clearly had an emotional response to it. But I, I, I didn't get the sense that he really internalized what she was saying and believed it. 
That was just my take on it. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, clearly he's got, um, we're going to hear him out loud later on say, those people died because it was me flat out to her. Right, right. But right. He, he he's very stiff when she's saying it mm-hmm. at first. I mean, I think he's he's probably heard it from his therapist. What has everyone else in his life said to him when these horrible things have happened? That it's his fault. <laughs> Everybody. Yeah. From, from casual conversation at a memorial to mm-hmm. the security guard's wife, who is unbelievably cruel. Mm-hmm. To his young's wife. To his young's wife, who is, I, I mean, I, I know speaking out of abject grief, but what she says to him is basically like, you should be the one who's dead. Yeah. And so, and he hasn't talked about this with anybody else. So other than his therapist, he hears for the first time, so it's not your fault. He, I, the way that he, it's just like, this is now, as you were saying, Gino, this is nonverbal acting performance. The way he has to like, look up and away and kind of almost lose it breaks me. Yeah. He's such an extraordinary actor. He really, really is. So much nonverbal communication to to her and to the audience in that scene, in that moment. Yeah. And throughout the show, really. (laughs) Yes, yeah. We always knew, I mean, and this is the thing, is that, you know, we, we did get those slight flashbacks and we knew that there was this sort of mysterious other memorial right that he was walking into and we know that there's this photograph in the book but so we always knew his reaction wasn't just about the grandfather we just didn't know what we were dealing with but now when we rewatch it all of those other horrific scenes of being blamed this is the first time in his life that somebody outside of therapy has ever said that to him. And what I think is so beautiful about this conversation and then later on Heijin walking in the rain is both of them take risks. He, he's stepping out on a limb with her to talk about things that he never has in, I don't know, 10, 15 years, I mean, with his grandfather other than his young, outside of therapy. And because he takes that risk, he hears the thing he needs to hear and like never has. And I think you're right, Gino, like he clearly has a lot still to process about whether he really internalizes that and believes it. But it's the first time he's ever heard it. And he is deeply moved by it. I also think it's like Heijin is really blunt. And this is one of those cases where being really blunt and <laughs> saying what you think. She's like not walking out eggshells. She's basically like, this is nonsense. And she like gets mad. She's like, your grandfather must be fuming in his grave. Talk to me about how she is so mad. She's almost crying and his reaction to it. I think that this is the first time he's ever really thought about it like that. Yeah. It was sort of my, and I think he's listening to her and really kind of like, it just takes him aback because I, I, I don't think that he's thought about it from what would your grandfather think that from that perspective before? And I think the fact that she's this, it's so counter to everything people have told him always, you know, like you said, 
Before, at the memorial service, his grandfather, what people were saying to each other that he overheard, what that security guard's wife was saying, what it's Hyung's wife was saying. You know, not only is it counter to everything people have told him, it's, I, I, I think it is providing, putting it in a perspective he'd not considered. And I think that really moves him. And I think he doesn't know how to process that. It's not what he expected. <laughs> no. And also, she's angry. Yeah. The it's idea like a, that he's hurting himself like this makes her angry. Yeah. It's like another nugget of information, right, for him. Because he's kind of like, there's, you know, there's so much processing that's going on in his head. But it's it's like her getting upset that he was stabbed. She's so angry that he would blame himself. She would, you know, she's saying your grandfather would be angry. But the subtext and her wiping that tear away is like, that makes me angry that you would blame yourself for that. Yeah. When he says, this is the second time I've ever shared my personal stories, it'd be right. It's like hilarious, right? Heijin does not like being second in anything, <laughs> right? But what I think, what I now think of is, I don't think it is a coincidence that Chief Hong has opened up on the safer ground about his grandfather. But when she's asking about who the first person was, that's his young. And then the conversation ends and he like deflects and doesn't answer the question. And he's like, oh, you're hungry. Let me go make food, which is exactly what he does in a later episode when she asks about what his desk job was and whether he would move back to Seoul. He deflects and he's like, let me. It's kind of I'm like, oh, this is you. This is like he's pulling a cheap hong. I'm not going to answer that question and I'm going to like divert it to something else. Okay, food is a very good distraction, first of all. <laughs> it is. But, but what strikes me about this is it's a situation where Haitian can't compete. Like, it's already done. <laughs> that just made me laugh because I'm thinking if this was the sort of thing she could go and, like, somehow come out on top of that person, she would. But, like, literally, you already told them and now you're telling her there's no, you know, there's no competition to be had. But it was, like, swirling in her mind. And I laughed so hard at that. Yeah. And she's also probably thinking that it was, like, another woman, you know? Sure. Yeah. Like, uh, who is this other? She's always, like, so with this later on, she's probably, like, well, did you tell the art history girlfriend to like later on I can matter Asian like speculating. She totally thought it was another woman. I'll admit I thought it was his therapist. Cause at that point we don't really know anything about his Hume. All right. All right. So I think it's time to take a timeout from sleepover number three and check in with poor director G, the other man who's sad staring at the ocean this episode. Any thoughts on... I love this sad, pensive, handsome man. Uh. (laughs) Anyway. Yeah, it's delicious. It is delicious. (laughs) Any flavor, really. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That poor lighthouse is getting a lot of angst. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Any thoughts about where director G is at right now? Thinking about how he did not say something in the past, wondering if maybe it is too late, but trying to decide whether to do it anyway. Any thoughts on how that fits into sort of his overall journey now that now that we know where he ends up? I mean, it's clear, you know, there's a lot of, you know, acting without speaking in his scenes in the first part of this episode. And I think that 
we really see all over his face regret, I, I think, regret for not having acted sooner. And I don't feel like he's at the point yet. Obviously, he's not at the point yet where he's willing to let go of it. But I do think that he he understands on some level maybe on every level that he's lost here and that he acted too late. But yeah, he does decide to do one last try anyway. I think because he's not able to fully, you know, look at what is in front of him now as opposed to sort of reliving past opportunities that he let. Yeah. Beep, do you have any thoughts about that? Like with the writer? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a huge turning point, oddly enough, for their relationship. And I think more so right now, though, on her side, because this is kind of the chain of events that gets her to the point of like, I'm leaving, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think what's interesting about him, which is actually very much like what's going on with everybody else in this point in the story is he just has absolutely no self-awareness or of the things that are going on around him. It's like he's kind of in his head and he can't see the person, you know, who's right in front of him. However, I think this is something that he needs to go through before he's ready for her anyway. Yeah. And there's that aspect of like always wondering when, I mean, I, I hate to see him, you know, get ditched. And I know we'll talk about the scene more later, but. I think so much of his feelings for her are nostalgia and are just hung on that. Wait a minute. I have this regret. Like, let me fix it. And not necessarily where he is right now. Not that I'm saying he doesn't have feelings for her because he does. I just don't know how much. And he even brings it up. But I'm not sure how much of it is nostalgic versus current. Yeah, I, I that's such an interesting point. Because if you think about what we were talking about before with Dushik and wondering about what ifs, director G gets a do-over, right? Like, it's yes, it's 14, 15 years later, but he he's, you know, he's sitting there saying, the one that got away, she's back in my life, may not work out, but I get to kind of swing for the fences, and then he doesn't have to wonder anymore. Right. Like you don't get those kinds of do overs in life that often. No, in most cases, the do over is simply it kind of happens again with somebody else. And, you know, you have to take the chance. It's not like the exact same scenario is going to play back out for you. Yeah, it's almost like a romantic exorcism. (laughs) He's got to like get it out of his system before you can see what's in front of him. And then you're right. It's almost like this chain reaction of self-realization. Right. Because we'll get to it. But I think. Him saying this out loud to Heijin is going to push her along her own journey of self-realization, but it's also going to push the writer to then be like, I'm out, which then is what will finally push him to realize what's in front of him. What is so wonderful about this, though, is that while he is a three-dimensional second lead with his own story, he is also a very important window for the audience into Heijin's past. And this flashback is basically the Haitian fashionista origin story. I wanted to read really quickly in the script book, there is a lot of really interesting detail where Shin Ha-un basically appears, at least from what we can discern from the translation, basically like a character summary 
of their biography, of each character's biography. And so for Hei Jin, she wrote, and we're using the translation as always, by at lovely Shin Mina. From an early age, her circumstances were not easy. Her mother worked in her school canteen and her father attended a small business. Although she was not wealthy, she has a simple and harmonious family. However, when Heijin was six years old, her mother was diagnosed with cancer, and her mother died after keeping her promise to attend her elementary school entrance ceremony. Her mother died after a two-year battle with cancer. After her mother left, Heijin's goal was to not upset her father, who was left alone with her. She did her homework well, she packed well, was ranked first in her studies and running, and she always prepared herself. With that sort of background in mind, tell me your thoughts about this scene, which presumably took, took place shortly after the flashback that we got uh, many episodes ago in the club, where she overheard her boyfriend talking about the way she's dressed, saying that she looked poor and pathetic and being embarrassed about her. Talk to me about this scene where she walks up now dressed like a much more familiar Haitian that we know in heels and sort of all glammed up and dumps him. She says, I deserve better. I am not wasting any more time. Yeah. I mean, when she did that, I definitely was like, you go, girl. You do deserve better. (laughs) It's interesting that she is strong when she says those things. And yet she does still take to heart the things that he made fun of her about in adopting, you know, fancy clothing as her armor. Mm. So it is definitely a power move on her part. It's definitely a sign of growing and being strong when she dumps him. But she doesn't leave off everything like, he, he clearly has had a lasting impact on her life because of how she dresses and the importance she places on that armor that she didn't have before. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, right? Words, it's, it's sort of a thread that runs through hometown cha-cha-cha. Words hurt, you know? So she, she dumped him. And she asserted her self-worth and she wasn't going to put up with somebody who treated her that way. But she still internalized it. And, w- and we saw her upset, right, in a bathroom a few episodes ago, and, ago when, when Misson brought it up. So I think that's, yeah, that's a really, it's a really interesting point, Gino. I Do find it interesting based on everything you just mentioned. And obviously those weren't canonical as far as us knowing it, but that doesn't mean it's not canonical, you know, to the story, especially coming from the writer. I'm a little bit surprised about how kind of strong and independent that she always was and even fell in with a guy like that. So I do think it's in character for her to have been independent in in the way she left him. But I'm curious, was that maybe like the first time she had overheard him and like he was, you know, a little more perfect in Mm. person toward her? Because obviously he didn't know you know, that she was listening to what he was saying, at least not initially. I know when they had the conversation later, he was, again, a dick. But I find I would find it interesting to kind of fill in those things. Otherwise, yeah. I wouldn't expect her to even fall for a guy like that to start with. Yeah. Um, but we are all human, so those mm-hmm. words are going to hurt. And it doesn't matter if it's coming from someone you respect or not. In so many cases, it's just like, wow, how could 
someone think this about me, you know, and you have an insecurity in you and it just is able to grow. Yeah. And I mean, there's a huge chunk of our life that we don't see anything about. So we don't know exactly, you know, we know a lot of what her traits are, but there are a lot of experiences that make up who we are. And there may be something about who she was at the time that she met him where it made sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what I... What I think is interesting about this is she later on says, I don't like gray areas. And as soon as she found out that he was a jerk, she dumped his ass. Like, we're done, right? She's not going to give him a second chance. She's done. And I, I like how even though like it frames her materialism in such an interesting way. And, you know, the more and more we've learned sort of about her backstory, it kind of adds like so many more interesting layers to it. But she says that he is cheap on the inside. And I think it's interesting that she ends up at the end of this episode running to a guy who she has called a fashion terrorist, (laughs) but she has realized is like an amazing human. And she's a pretty good judge of character. And once she figures it out, it's like she's pretty like impetuous. Like she doesn't sit with things for a while, right? She's the opposite of Director G. Like. Yeah. <laughs> no matter what happens, I'm going to blow this up right now. We'll see. Yeah. So let's talk about Director G in this flashback. I think uh, what, one of the things that I love about this story is that this is a love triangle that honors everybody's feelings and everybody's like worth and importance at different points in people's lives. So even if he's not the guy that she's going to end up with, Do you guys have any thoughts about how he reacted to seeing her, first of all, her humiliation, and then second of all, how she stood up for herself? All of it speaks really well to his character and underscores that he really was a decent guy. I mean, he doesn't take the opportunity now that she's single to like press his, you know, he doesn't try to hit on her or ask her out. He puts what he wants with her to the side and is there to support her, you know, with his bag of, uh, with his mom bag. (laughs) (laughs) I I The whole deal with the sausages in the, throughout this just kills me. It's so funny. He's got everything. He has the ultimate mom bag. He has band-aids. He has snacks. Like, you need it. Yeah. And I mean, I think, like, you know, there was some... There are arguments to be made that he should have spoken up earlier. He acted too late. But, you know, in this precise moment, he did exactly what a good person should do. And, yeah, no, I thought it just really spoke well to his character. Like, everything. He showed that he cared about her and was more interested in her well-being than his own interest in dating her. Yeah, he, he showed her the utmost respect. Yeah. In what he didn't do. Yeah, because it's I feel like it's a point that Shin Ha-un makes over and over again, including in this episode, right, is that people act like friends first before, you know, maybe they should speak up about the romantic feelings, but that the most important thing is that there's somebody who's there for you. So, yeah, he's there. He's got a Band-Aid. He's there to listen to her. There's some beautiful lines in this scene. Nothing is easy at first whether it's wearing your first pair of high heels or your first relationship. It's just, you know, pretty simple wisdom, but 
I don't know, it's a really lovely scene. When I when I watch it now, I'm like, you know, I feel a little nostalgic for their first love, even though it's the one that I'm not rooting for, if that makes sense, you know? Because I think he was important in her life when he came along. What are your thoughts about, because shoes are obviously very important symbolism in this show from the beginning all the way to the end. Do you guys have any thoughts about the first pair of shoes that Hazen bought for herself and why? I thought that it was interesting that they hurt her feet. <laughs> I think it was almost a connection to the pain that she'd be willing to endure to not be seen that way anymore. Yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting line. Pretty things have thorns. So now we've shifted from Cinderella to Sleeping Beauty. Sweet. <laughs> this is sort of her origin story in terms of the Heijin that we met at the beginning of the show. And there's a lot to unpack that's both positive and negative. That's part of the journey that we're going to go on with her at the end of this episode, right? So there's the negative parts of it. There's using clothes as armor, using materialism and status to like assert her her worth in like a competitive way against against others, which clearly is isolating and doesn't make her happy because that's who we met at the beginning of the show. But then there's the other piece of it that is she works hard and she buys things for herself to feel good about herself and is a reward for herself, which is ultimately going to be the necklace, right? And there's there's good parts about it. So Gino, yeah, it is really interesting that, you know, they cut her feet. Not only is it realistic because heels do that the first time you wear them without socks <laughs> or hose but but yeah there's it's the, it is sort of an interesting kind of like double-edged sword to the symbolism right because it's the first pair of shoes she buys for herself to assert her self-worth but it also cuts her feet yeah yeah well armor is heavy yeah i mean trying yeah. you know trying to present someone else to the world and kind of having to stifle your authentic self. I mean, it's heavy. Uh, yeah. So that, it, I think that wraps up where Director G is sort of self-flagellating over whether he should, say, he should say something. So we can get back to the parallel crisis date nights <laughs> that are happening between Jushik and Heijen. And then back in Seoul, Misson and Yunchul. Do you guys have any thoughts about how, at least at this point, with these two men sort of by both of these women's sides, how they're, how, what Shin Ha-un is saying sort of about what's important about how you show the way that you care about somebody? It's exactly what she just did in the flashback. I mean, the, these men are doing the same thing. They're showing, a, not that either of them was particularly, you know, trying to battle with a certain decision in this way, but they are friends first. And yeah. that's how you love somebody is through, you know, through your actions. And they're both just there. Yeah. I think both of them, it's very clear that their love language is acts of service. In quality time. Yeah. 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 What Yun Chol says, I'm more worried about you than myself. Mm-hmm. That's there are many people in this episode who are acting that way. And, you know, he drove to Seoul all night and now he's going to sit up and stay up all night with her and is like telling her to rest, right? While she, while her mother's in surgery. And it's, you know, as of right now, they're just friends. 
her ex was clearly a piece of garbage too. So these ladies don't have a history of like picking the right guy. Yeah, is she I mean there there's a lot of parallels, right? And and they are both going through sort of realizations about how they feel about these two men, but Misson is also kind of going through a realization about her own self-worth and how she let guys treat her in the past. Right? Because do you guys remember what it, when he is like, I'm going to stay up all night and is sitting with you, we learn later that what she's thinking about is that her ex-boyfriend wouldn't even come to the hospital when her father was there because he was worried that her parents were going to pressure him about marriage. That's so ridiculous. Like, yeah. What an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. 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 So I, there's just, she's playing, you know, right? This is a woman writer that is very... You know, some of it is subtle and some of it is more like, you know, she's just consistently being like, this is how women should expect to be treated. And this is who they should dump. (laughs) Right. If we can go back to the sleepover, she's not only making that point about romantic love, because when Misson calls Heijin, talk to me about Heijin not telling her what has happened back in Gunjin. Now she's doing the same thing in return. I mean, I think it really underscores how much she cares for her best friend because she knows that her her mother is going through a lot right now and that she has a lot on her plate right now. And she does it because, you know, she does not want her friend to worry when she already has a lot of worries on her plate already. And you can see how do she, you know, how his eyes kind of, flick to her when she says, oh, everything's fine here. I think he he definitely registers that she has done this. I mean, I think it just really underscores how much she cares for her best friend. Yeah, that's sort of, I'm more worried about you than myself applies to friendship as well as romantic relationships because he just got attacked in their home and she just wants her friend to focus on her mother. Yeah. Yeah. She, you know, I I specifically would really like to know what are your feelings about do she about to tuck Heijin into his bed while wearing his clothes and everything that happens next? (laughs) (laughs) Do you want the the E-rated AO3 version or? (laughs) Internally, what was going on? Like inside Gino in this moment. Oh, inside <laughs> Gino. Okay. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I was shrieking in DMs. I mean, I feel like, you know, the scene that launched a thousand fix. I mean, I was squealing. Like, clearly, you could see that he was trying to be very stoic about it all and trying not to have feelings about it. And not reacting to the fact that the woman that he cares for is wearing his clothes and sleeping in his bed. We really were just really concerned with the status and size of Dushik's bed. It was throughout this entire show. It was way too small. It was a terrible bed. And the people need to know. No, but I think like it was very clear and just it goes to his just masterful acting. Like, you can see that he's very kind of on edge about it and trying very hard 
to keep internal walls in place because it's a very, it's incredibly intimate. Like it's not necessarily sexual, but it's just an intimate thing to share the clothes that are on your body with somebody else. And the sheets that you sleep in, it's just really intimate. And he's somebody that, you know, has such, he he doesn't let anybody in. And this is letting someone he cares about in, in such a specific and intimate way. And it's just so apparent in watching it, like the way when she grabs his shirt, he goes very rigid and still. You, I really thought he was trying hard to maintain control mm. and not to let, like, trying to calm down his panic boner. <laughs> oh, my God. He's, like, internally screaming. You if you were him. Internally screaming. And he's like, this is fine. I'm going to make jokes about, about planting, you know, mines in your front yard and everything's fine. And everything's fine. It's just the wind. Yep. I would like to... Before we get to the show, I, I just want to give a shout out because I know that we've had a lot of a lot of village talk about the hero of Ganjin. But honestly, Bugyong, the fisherman village captain's dog, to me, is the true hero of Ganjin. Because <laughs> <laughs> his howling is the reason why we get everything that happens next. Like, I don't know what he is. I don't know what shipper. He's a shipper. He's a sick high shipper. And we thank you for your service. (laughs) But when she grabs his shirt, it's such a wonderful parallel to when he grabbed her purse strap back with the laundry scene. It is a physical don't go. And right now, she's the one who needs the comfort because she's scared because she was attacked in her home and she is scared to sleep alone. And when she grabs his shirt, it's like this. It's either something that he says out loud to her or something that they physically do to one another. This like, don't go, like stay here because I need you. And sometimes it's something that is sad. It's sad. And sometimes it's something that she physically does. Before we dig into what happens next and the poem, I just would like to hear both of your thoughts about how how do you feel about the man who we have seen have nightmares and not be able to sleep because of them, now reading poetry to the woman he loves who is scared and cannot sleep. Squealing! <laughs> Wait, now you're saying that you're squealing? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, I already made beep death a little bit earlier. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was just really what a scene. The meta, like the substance of the poem he reads is just so meta. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I just think it was really, couldn't have picked a better, more appropriate poem. And you can see the moment when he registers that. <laughs> when he's like, okay, this is a little too autobiographical. <laughs> I mean, listen, Chief Hong's bookshelf, he should know whenever he picks up a book of poetry, it's going to call him out. Because the last time he was thinking about a first kiss and then he opened a book of poetry and it was like first kiss. Like, mm-hmm. don't go to poetry, Dushik. Stay out of that section of yeah. your bookshelf. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I have to love how... At the end, 
the writer, and I know I, I might be jumping ahead a little bit, how the writer entered, it's a very heavy, very intimate, powerful scene. And then we we cut it with some comic relief when Hygen says, who is the first person <laughs> you told that story to? Um, yeah, yeah. Sleep because some of her competition is built into her personality. That, is, <laughs> that didn't, yeah. that was not caused by the crappy boyfriend. Yeah, no, it is something the show always does so beautifully is that it wears its heart on its sleeve mm-hmm. and gives you these like, you know, kind of takes your breath away and how romantic and emotional it is. And then it punctures it with humor. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the way the scene is set up, right? A man reading poetry to a woman at night is so effing romantic. It's like out of a period piece. That is not something that we normally see in the year 2021. No. Men doing it. And yet it is not, it's not cheesy and it's not, it shouldn't be a surprise because this is like fundamentally part of who Chief Hong is, right? We have seen him reading books. His house is filled with books. This is part of who he is. So it's like, it's beautifully romantic, but it's also completely in character because that's the character that Shin Haun has built up to this point. But he also is basically making fun of her. He's like, I'm reading you this poetry because I know you're going to fall asleep because you don't read books. (laughs) You know, it's like also still firmly rooted in that opposites attract like humor that he's like, okay, so name five books that inspired you. And she's like, whatever, just read. <laughs> so yeah, the humor is is absolutely there. And, you know, she's like still grabbing onto his shirt at the end. And he like starts cracking up because she basically, I think, kind of like curses over <laughs> being jealous about this other person. If we can talk really quickly about the actual poem, which is obviously Gatekeeper, and it's from a collection of, a volume of collection of poetry by Kim Hung Suk named Portrait of Echoes. He cuts off at the obvious part, so it's my job to deny my love. What I think is interesting is the rest of the poem is very, sort of the way the poet poem is written, it very much turns into talking, it's it's clear that it is the gatekeeper speaking. And the rest of the poem is, I won't cry over my vocation I wrote, but while writing in my diary, I sometimes wept. Do you guys have any thoughts about this poem and how it describes Dushik's character journey up until this point? This idea of a of a gatekeeper, and the poem is written as a gatekeeper in this first person, almost like the poem is written in first in the first person. I am gatekeeping my own heart. Well, it's definitely written for him. <laughs> if I didn't know who wrote it, I would also wonder, was it written by him? <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it was very on the note. I mean, it, it fit the situation perfectly. Yeah. I mean, if you think about, think about all of the scenes that up until this point, like, it's my job to deny your objective. It's my geno- job to deny you the next day. It's my job to wait for you the following day to deny you again. Think about all the times he popped up where she was like, why are you always around? And how many times he denied a first kiss, whether or not they kissed, whether it meant something, whether they're just friends and like constantly 
denying it, it is like remarkable that she found this work that was like so perfect. But I also was thinking about on our last podcast, writer Christy Golden came on and she talked about how this story doesn't have a villain, but that the antagonist is human beings inability or reticence to embrace human connection. And here we have this poem that is basically personifying that as people being gatekeepers to their own hearts. Cannot relate. (laughs) Totally well-adjusted in every way. (laughs) No, this is, uh, I mean, it's hard. He is, he's getting called out left and right. And as much as he knows it, He's just, he can't take that leap yet. It would be interesting to see his side of this. There were there was no need to show it. But it would be interesting to see a flashback almost, like for a situation he might have been in with Director Xi or showing him, you know, denying somebody else. It'd be interesting to see if he's gotten better or worse since things like that have happened. But I digress. It made me very uncomfortable <laughs> this whole thing i was like get up and run get up and run <laughs> also i feel like he's probably read this before so what in the world was he thinking <laughs> i mean i appreciate it for us but like come on guy well i mean he just let the poets of his bookshelf are just waiting lying in wait <laughs> to call out hong you're just sheet. trolling him honestly <laughs> What what I think is so interesting is like now, so now we know that late, like the next night, he's going to describe his feelings for her as being as large and deep as like the oldest lake in the world. And, and he is like he is operating now on a level like right we have we have gone through a huge long journey of denial right like taking the word from the poem deny my love he's now fully aware of it right he almost thought about confessing it she's lying there in his house he stops at the word denying my love the denial what is i i find so like heartbreaking about this now that we know everything that he's struggling with is that he it, it's all like as like Shin Ha-un says, it was his heart that he could neither confess nor deny his love. And Beep, I was wondering if you had any thoughts about how much that is wrapped up in his trauma, because denying himself is at some level coming from guilt. Oh, absolutely. And unwarranted guilt, I think, as we always kind of stress a little bit. But yeah, that's exactly where it's coming from. And it's hard because what this all means, the fact that he can't say yes or no, is just that he's stuck. He's no longer making progress. He's gotten himself in a rut. I feel like after, you know, all his therapy and whatever, this is what we talk about all the time, that we saw him live through it. And now he's kind of, I mean, he's still going, but he's towards the end of his therapy and he's not yet able to work out what they've learned or what they've done in the room to his outside life. I agree with that. I think it's guilt for sure. And also there's some fear as well. I mean, everybody that he's ever been close to, he he feels, you know, everybody that he's been 
super close to has died. And he feels that it's his fault. <laughs> mm-hmm. So there's guilt, but I, I, I have to think that there's some amount of fear in there as well. He's, he doesn't want to think about the future. He's afraid of it. Right, which is why he's stuck in the present, right? Because he can't confess it. He can't deny yeah. it, right? So he, yeah, he, it's just being like stuck, like treading water. Yeah. Yeah, his life is in stasis. And the thing that's interesting about it, though, with what you just said, he's kind of afraid of the future. In my mind, he just doesn't think there is one. And I think yeah. he's never thought that. But mm-hmm. what happens is, he keeps aging. He keeps having a future, but he's not planning for it because he just assumes that it's not going to be there. Yeah. Yeah. When she, when, you know, Poor months man. from now, I know months from now when she'll ask him, have you ever thought about children? It, it's like he can't even, you know, can't even wrap his brain around it. Yeah. Even though he's doing things sort of unconsciously that are inherently planning for the future, right? Like making wine for her that won't be ready for a year. That's almost just by like a day-to-day instinct. But in his head, which so much of this episode, right, is a battle between his head and his heart, he's like stuck up in his head and he can't, you know, he can't imagine it. One of the things that I think is sort of lovely on rewatch is he describes his, we now know he's describing his Hyung as a very warm-hearted person. And he described Heijin that way to her dad in the last episode. And as we get to some future scenes at the grandfather's memorial, there's a lot of parallels between Heijin and his friend from college in terms of how they are, what he describes as warm-hearted people, like, and how that's tied to the grandfather and how he is able to open up to these people when he isn't able to open up to basically anybody else. I love that they are, we always have baby steps in terms of how the director stages them sleeping. So they're now facing in the same direction, but are on different levels. <laughs> but they're sharing a blanket. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> I can't deal with that. Oh, adorable. So cute. Oh, oh, my God. Right. He didn't have to. See, I, I mean, when my husband watched this, he was like, oh, my God, he's got a stab wound and his bed is free. And he's still sleeping on the floor next to her so that she's not alone, even though she's already fallen asleep. Like, mm-hmm. ugh. What an asshole. Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, we did it. Kind of. As you can tell, you only got half of episode 10, so you can look forward to a part two in a couple weeks featuring full-on fangirl flails. We can't wait for you to hear it. Till then, we'll see you soon. <laughs>